0: You don't even have bells anymore. Yes. I'm so old, I go home before closing time. Right. Any. Anyway, welcome everyone to the latest in our beer and Brexit series. And we are delighted to have with us Quasi Quateng. I've Bell. got some interesting facts as ever. He has sure? been on page three of The Sun. That's true. But not for the reasons you might suspect, but an even <laughs> better reason than you might suspect. He's been on page three of The Sun because as a university college uh, challenge contestant, to the, in the team that went on to win, he buzzed for a question. The camera panned on him and he said, Oh, fuck, I've forgotten. <laughs> 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 Which earned him his place in the sun. Uh, he has a PhD in economic history from the University of Cambridge. So you didn't get into Oxford then. No, uh, absolutely. His first attempt to get into Parliament was Brent East, that Tory stronghold. Uh, but finally elected for Spelthorne in Surrey in 2010. And I think your majority is a healthy, if any majority is healthy. Thirteen thousand plus. It's a good caveat, there. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> There's no such thing as a safe seat. He was PPS to Philip Hammond, and in November 2018 became minister in the Department for Exiting the EU. And you're responsible for the future security partnership. That's right for Very the European Union. That. So, let's start off with a bit of reminiscing. We you're not going to ask
1: about University Challenge, are you?
0: I might come back to that, yes, okay. because I find that story quite fascinating. But it's uh... quite a simple story. It's not <laughs> that fascinating. I'm easily pleased. <laughs> Were you a Eurosceptic at university?
1: I was actually more pro-EU at university. And I remember having a big debate with Anatole Kolecki who came uh, to Cambridge in the late 90s and he was very against the Euro. Mm -hmm. And I thought at the time that the Euro was a natural progression. Uh, And so I was arguing for it and he was arguing against it. And then 20 years later I saw him at a book festival and we had completely swapped sides. He was arguing for EU membership. And I thought that actually once the euro currency, we didn't adopt that, mm. then Brexit was a, not, a, not a logical and necessary step, but it was, it was something that yeah. was likely to happen. In fact, I think that historians in the future will look back as, at us not joining the euro as a much bigger step than the actual vote of Brexit. That's my own view, but, just, uh, but let's see
0: what but happens. It is amazing how things have changed. Well, I remember the outcry when arch eurosceptic Gideon Rackman was given a column on the Financial Times as if this was the end of civilisation. Right. Uh, the debate changed yeah.
1: hugely. So I think that... And why I say the comment about the euro is that I think if we had adopted the euro, Brexit would not have happened. So yeah. not adopting the euro was a necessary but not sufficient condition for Brexit. And I think once we didn't adopt the single currency, we, we, we avoided that. I think there was always going to be this question of
0: membership that would, that would come back. Uh, um, and it's worth remembering, I suppose, that if you read the Bloomberg speech again, which I did recently, yeah. Cameron's concern was being a euro out. I mean, it was our structural situation vis-a-vis the eurozone countries that actually yeah. sparked his thinking. So about- a, a
1: lot of the debate about Europe at the beginning of this decade, 2010, 11, 12, was about the euro. And in fact, the word Brexit was, came from Grexit. Yeah. And, everyone, and Grexit related to the euro whether Greece would leave the Euro. And then I think um, Peter Wilding came up with Brexit in 2012, and, and of course the name took off.
0: So, as a historian, Thank you. would yeah. you like to rank Theresa May amongst Conservative Prime Ministers? I think, I think I'll avoid that. Okay, all right, fair enough. <laughs> I'm going to keep trying with questions like that. I mean, yeah, yeah, uh, that's a nice question. Yeah. When you worked for Philip Hammond, did you talk about Brexit with him?
1: Yeah, I mean, he had a very different view from me. Yeah. And so I was, appointed, I was appointed as PPS, as mm-hmm. Parliamentary Private Secretary. And in, in the Conservative Party, a lot, a lot of people don't realise this. It. So it's a whip's office appointment. And I think in Labour, senior secretaries of state get to choose who their PPS is generally, um, or, or shadow ministers. Whereas in the Conservative Party, certainly now, it's very much a whip's appointment. And so I was appointed. I mean, he was, you know, he was indifferent, really, to me. Um, and, but he, he, did, he did question me on Brexit. And he said, uh, and he questioned me on other things. And then after about an hour... Uh, he said it was, he was happy with the appointment. And actually, we got on very well. We worked very closely on budget, the budget in particular, 2017 budget. Not the, not the, the U-turn one in yeah. the beginning, the end, the last one, the November one. And uh, I enjoyed working with him very much. I had huge respect for his attention to detail, his grasp of the brief. But we had, did have slightly different views on, on Brexit. Do you believe the same thing as him when it comes to the economic forecast about Brexit? I think, we well, see, he was one of the people, I mean, he was Foreign Secretary at the time, and he was, I, I hate to say it, but I think he was quite involved in the whole Project Fear thing, and that didn't really come, come to fruition. And people say, oh, we haven't left yet. No, the actual comments were made about the vote. And so when um, George Osborne made his remarks, he said we're going to have a budget. That budget was the, in, in the immediate aftermath of the vote. That was mm-hmm. his plan. It wasn't a budget in, at some subsequent mm-hmm. date where we, w- we would have left. And I think a lot of those predictions, thankfully, will will prove to
0: be completely wrong, actually. But you get, as an economic historian, that there's a difference between a short-term economic forecast that tries to to predict behaviour and a long-term economic forecast based on putting in place barriers to trade.
1: Yes, I do. But the problem is is that if you're making, which they did, predictions about what will happen in 2030, there's no earthly power in the world. Um, which can, deci- can describe what happens in 2030. And my, my, my father's an economist, I was an economic historian, and I think broadly, when uh, Michael Gove said, oh, we don't believe in experts, I think that was, he didn't phrase it that um, nicely, but I think there's a broad point about ec- the, the pretensions of economics. I mean, economics is essentially a social science, it was known as political economy until essentially the middle of the 20th century broadly, okay, the late 19th century, and it's adopted very much the, 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 the prestige the heavy mathematics Mm. of physics, but it can never be physics. It can never be a hard science because you're dealing with human motivation and human behaviour. And I think that that I I, I respect economics hugely, but I think some of the claims that economists make about the subject and some of the the authority that it, it tries to bring
0: to itself is pretty spurious, that's, that's all I would say. I think we've you got to take it with a pinch of salt. One of the hardest things about my job is that mm-hmm. my gut reaction will be to join in slagging off economists now. Uh, that's what I'd like to do sure. personally, but I'm going to actually stand up for them mm. and say, do. aren't you being slightly disingenuous? Because, all right, I take the point, that no one can predict what the British economy will look like in 2030. No but that's not what these forecasts are doing. What these forecasts are doing is saying broadly, all things being equal, and all sorts of other things will affect the size of the British economy that we can't predict. If we're outside the single market in the customs union, and we're therefore trading le- less with our nearest and biggest yeah, trading yeah, look, look, partner. Look, I'm not here to re-argue uh, okay.
1: Brexit, okay? I'm making a very broad comment about economics as a discipline, and the kinds of claims that it makes for itself. It has very little predictive power. As the Queen is supposed to have said in 2008, why didn't any of the economists see this um, financial uh, downturn coming? And then some of them said they did, but the vast majority didn't. And in a subject like physics and chemistry and actual hard sciences, physical sciences, they do make predictions which have, can be falsifiable. And when they are falsified, they, ha- they change the theory. So to try and make economics the same thing as a hard science, which essentially is what many economists are claiming or trying to push, I think is completely wrong.
0: Okay, but there is a happy medium between overclaiming and dismissing everything. Sure, I, don't, yeah.
1: I wouldn't dismiss everything. Okay. You've got to interrogate the assumptions and you've got to understand yeah. the assumptions. But that's, that's the bit that I think is the most uh, open to debate, the various assumptions. I mean, people made certain um, predictions in the 1890s about you know, traffic in London um, and they didn't know about cars. I mean, that was a massive, massive innovation, which no one could predict. So I think, I think yeah, it is helpful, um, but I think people slavishly follow, uh, too slavishly follow uh, predictions, which uh, are not made. It's a social science at the end okay. of the day. It's not a hard science.
0: Did you consider throwing your hat in the ring for the leadership? Oh, every day. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> you
1: got to the point, there was one point about two months before the thing kicked off. There were about 20 candidates. Yep. And uh, my researcher put them all in the spreadsheet. I won't even say all their names. You had a
0: spreadsheet?
1: I had a spreadsheet because I wanted to ta- tally what was going on. And actually, the, the spreadsheet became very useful because I saw that lots of people had, before, it wasn't public, they would pledged to about three or four candidates. And this always happens in Tory leadership mm-hmm. campaigns. So you've got to keep a tab of what everyone has been saying. And, that, and then I thought, well, I mean, if so-and-so is going to run, why shouldn't I run? Mm. But I didn't, thankfully. When you say so and so, I'm not going to say no. who the names no. were because some <laughs> of them did run and some of them didn't. All right. Um, I mean, all sorts. And one person came up to me and said, "Oh, um, I said you don't have a chance. You don't have any money. You haven't raised any money. You don't have uh, a parliamentary operation, um, and nobody knows who you are." I was very blown. Yeah, but apart from that, and then and they said, "No, no, I think I've got a great, I've got a great, I've got a great campaign," and and then uh, he said, "Oh." I I want you to be in charge of the parliamentary operation. I'm like, no, I don't don't think that's going to work. Because you've got to, I think if you're going to run for leadership, you've got to really think about, you know, who you are, what you represent, what platform you have. Hmm. Um, And I think a lot of the candidates um, perhaps hadn't thought that through um, so so, um, carefully. And actually many of them didn't run in the end. And I think that that showed a lot of judgment. And some started to run and then pulled out, which again showed some degree of self-awareness.
0: I'm always embarrassed to ask you this next question, but do you, do you reckon you'll be in the next cabinet? I don't, I don't, I have no idea. I don't think so. I don't even know who's going to right? You're a, you're a Tory rising star, aren't you? Yeah, people say that. You know, that's, that's the kiss of death. Endorsement from that's endorsement That's the kiss of death. Official like, endorsement from the UK in a changing Europe. What I, could possibly I, go wrong? I,
1: I, 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 uh, that's a kiss of death. I mean, the number of future prime ministers that I've seen, yeah. um, and the number of them that actually became prime minister is about 20 to 1, the ratio, roughly. So I would uh, very much avoid uh, that sort of uh, definition. Look, I-, I, want to, I like my job. I'd love to stay in Dexu. I might get offered another job. I might have to leave the government. We don't even know who's going to be the next prime minister. I know you want to prejudge that, but you know, it, could go, it could go one of two ways. And I'm a Boris fan, a Boris supporter, but
0: you know, let's see what happens. Are you a strong enough Boris supporter to make the case that he was a good foreign secretary? I think he was uh, a good... No, I-, I would say he was a good...
1: He, he was a good, uh, no, hang on, <laughs> he was a good, I think he's a very strong um, representative of British interests. I mean, he was unorthodox in many ways. But I think, that, uh, and what I want to quell is this idea that he was somehow a completely hopeless foreign actually, because there were a lot of enemies he had, uh, not only outside but within the party. Whatever he'd done, he could have had the diplomatic skills, I was gonna say of John the Baptist, but you know what I mean. He could have had extremely good diplomatic skills And it would have been spun that he was a disaster. I mean, he's one of these figures who's always going to um, attract uh, controversy and attention, and people have strong views one way or the other. Um, And that's a function of being a very strong politician. I mean, there isn't a politician you're talking about in history. If you look at every single big politician, however you define that, uh, in the last 300 years, they've always divided uh, opinion. Uh, They've always been quite controversial figures. Looking back 300 years later, we don't see that. But at, at the time, they're very uh, controversial figures. I've just been at a literary festival uh, with a, a lady called Anna Beer. She's written a fascinating book about Walter Raleigh, So Walter Raleigh. And uh, she was saying that at the time, I mean, now he's seen as a kind of a hero of, of British intrepidity and all of that and adventure. At the time, he was an incredibly divisive uh, and controversial figure. Um, and I don't think Boris is... That divisive, actually, compared to some of these pi- figures in the past, um,
0: and, I, and I hope that he can he can win. Well, you've segued nicely into our next question because you actually wrote in the Sunday Times that you think he's a unifying mm. figure. I think uh, he can be a unifying figure. Isn't that a bit curious, given that there are members of your own party who have said they can't stay in the party if he becomes a leader? So, if he becomes the leader, I don't think anyone will leave the party. That's that. You can quote me on that.
1: If he does become the leader, I don't think any of the MPs absolutely will. will. I don't think any of the MPs will leave. Um, what they do in any kind of subsequent vote on oh, no confidence, I don't know, but I don't think they will formally leave at all. And I just feel that, you know, as Mayor of London, he was a, he, he did bring people together. Now, um, it's the, 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 I always say the Olympics, and people say it had nothing to do with it, but we always play that game in politics. Hmm. If, if something goes wrong, it's absolutely 100% your fault. If the Olympics had gone wrong, people would have said Boris was a disaster and a shambles. Of course, when they went right, then it had nothing to do with him. And I always think that, you know, we should be even-handed in politics. That's
0: a bit like our office. <laughs> Is it like you've had the same?
1: Yeah, uh, and, and so I think that uh, he did... He, he captured something about the spirit of London then in some way, and I think that was unifying.
0: Now, just... We're going to have to talk about the Brexit negotiations a little, sure. little bit, I'm afraid. Uh That's fine. It's called beer and Brexit, I'll well, you, yeah. isn't it? Well, yeah. Well, I've got wine, so I can do what I want. But...
1: Uh, <laughs> I was going to say it's your event. You've christened it beer and Brexit, but you're drinking red wine. That's very interesting.
0: Fifty-year-old bladder. We'd have to have tea Brexit. We'd have to have breaks if I sure. start drinking beer. But uh, you didn't want to know that. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, can, what does he have that Theresa May doesn't have? I mean, the, what is characteristic of both these candidates sure. is they seem to think that they have something sort of in and of themselves. Let alone their new negotiating teams or their new strategies. That means they can turn up in Brussels and the EU will say, "Ah, oh, you're not Theresa May." we'll scrap the backstop. So dare I say it, I think that's quite an academic view of looking at things. I take academic
1: as a compliment. No, it's good, it's good, but it's it's slightly different from my point of view. The the problem Theresa May wasn't the negotiation with the EU. Mm -hmm. The problem Theresa May had was getting this thing through Parliament, and the big problem she had was that her governing coalition um, didn't come together. I mean, and the EU, they're on record, if you look at the documentaries, they're on record as saying they couldn't believe the fact that a third of the withdrawal agreement uh, was relating to the Northern Ireland backstop. The protocol was on the Northern Ireland protocol, from about pages 300 to 450, something like that, of the 585-page document was about the Northern Ireland protocol, and they couldn't believe they couldn't believe that we didn't get the DUP on side. You know, so so the, D, the, the the failure of and I was involved in that. I was the bill minister. The failure to get it through Parliament was an extraordinary uh, piece of parliamentary history. And the fact is, the key component of the, of the governing coalition, the DUP, voted against the deal three times. And that says to me that something clearly has gone wrong with, with parliamentary management. So I think that's one thing that a new prime minister, whether Jeremy or Boris, can, can rapidly deal with. Because there's no way that you're going to get a deal through uh, as a, with the configuration of the parliament when the DUP votes against it three times. Now, I use the phrase necessary and not sufficient. Mm-hmm. It may well be that having the DUP on side is not sufficient, but it was absolutely necessary to landing a deal. And I think from, from the parliamentary point of view, um, the, the, the on pass we reached was because of the parliament. It wasn't necessarily to do with the negotiation.
0: Well, two things. I mean, firstly, there's a circle to be squared, isn't there? Because if the only way of getting the DUP on side is to suggest changes that the EU isn't willing to accept, nothing moves. Sure, I get that. Um, I also question this assumption that the, I get
1: asked all the time, oh, they won't move, they won't move at all, they're, they're set in stone. They've already moved. Uh, last year, they said alternative arrangements was effectively impossible. Mm-hmm. They ruled that out. Mm-hmm. This year, they've said that they want to look at alternative arrangements. That's 180-degree volt fuss. So they can change, they are flexible. And this idea that, you know, that everything they've said is
0: set in stone and they're not going to move, I think I question that as well. OK, well, let's just talk for a second then. Mr. Johnson last night talking to Laura Kunzberg was talking about all the technology that you can use at a border, the fact that you can do checks away from the border, and that basically you do not need a hard border in Northern Ireland, there are ways oh. around it. If he genuinely believes that, why doesn't he just sign up to the backstop because it will never be used? Well, he did vote for the, back, the deal
1: with the backstop, but of course the House of Commons rejected it. And I, I was, funny enough, just seeing um, a company today, Uh, Fujitsu, they've done a lot of work on alternative arrangements, they feel that there is definitely a solution and clearly I think in terms of the backstop alternative arrangements is going to be something which is going to play a bigger part and the the question that I'm afraid Theresa May had to answer was how seriously people question I'm not questioning her uh, sincerely at all but people have questioned how seriously she took the alternative arrangements um, deal or, or issue when she went to Brussels
0: Uh, earlier this year. But at heart, isn't this just a question of trust? Because ultimately, what the EU will have been saying today, let's not prejudge what they'll say in the future, is you find a way of making that border work, that's absolutely fine. If we're happy with it, we'll let it fly. Absent that proof, why should we trust you? Give us the backstop. And let's face it, if they're dealing with a Prime Minister who's threatening to withhold money we've agreed to pay them, which they see as a liability, why should their trust be any greater? So I think that the... um,
1: I take a slightly different view, as you can imagine. I think that they want to get a deal done, they want this Brexit thing to be put to bed, uh, and they are actually very open about trying to reach some sort of conclusion. With regard to the hard border, the Irish government have said they don't want a hard border under any circumstances. We have said we don't want a hard border under any circumstances, and the EU themselves have said they do not want a hard border under any circumstances. Now, given that those are the positions of those three parties, I don't believe it's beyond the wit of uh, the officials or the wit of man to come up with a solution with alternative arrangements to deal with the problem. Now, with the backstop, you're asking me about the backstop. I voted for the backstop. I voted for Theresa May's deal three times. I was the bill minister in charge of Trying to bring this thing through, uh, so I was completely interested
0: uh, and, and involved in trying to get the deal through, but it, it didn't, didn't work. Didn't happen. You said in the past that one of the problems with the negotiators was that the negotiators had become friends or were friends. When did I say that? Uh, we will find at out. Some I'll get back. Yeah, some I agree point, with yeah. that, but I just wanted to know when. Okay, I, can. I can't remember when you said it. <laughs> I haven't got footnotes. Uh, <laughs> but is that is that an accusation that Ollie Robbins weren't native? No, I wouldn't use that,
1: uh, that, those words. But um, I think when you're in a negotiation, uh, you've got to think about the politics mm-hmm. back home, mm-hmm. and you've also got to engage with the, the people you're negotiating with. And I'll say this very broadly about the process. My understanding was that it was a very bureaucratic process. The, the, the Prime Minister took, took a bureaucratic view and essentially, I think, forgot about Parliament. Because... That's the only way you can explain why we lost by 230. Uh, Can you imagine it? 230 was the majority against the deal when it came to the House in January. And this was a record. I think people had to go back to the 18th century to see a governing party lose that heavily. And even then, when they scoured the records, they didn't find...
0: Isn't there a a different spin you can put on that, though? What is your spin? Well, the spin on that would be that actually MPs didn't start to take it seriously or understand what the hell they were doing until the third vote, by which time the majority... But do you think, as a Prime Minister, that
1: and people forget this. People forget about the, uh, how our system evolved. There was, there was a prime minister before there were organized parties, and the whole point of being prime minister from Walpole was that they could manage the House of Commons. Mm-hmm. That's what, that was the key part of the job. And I think that as a government, we, did, we, didn't, we failed to do that. And a very uh, clever, friendly uh, American professor made a very good point about um, what happened with uh, the Theresa May's deal. Uh, those of you who know uh, and read about the First World War, will know that after the First World War, President Wilson came up with this idea called the League of Nations. And what he did was he negotiated the League of Nations with the uh, powers in Europe and then tried to sell it in Congress. And do you know what happened? It completely bombed because he thought, "Right, this is a really sensible idea. This is a great idea. Reasonable people like me and across the world think the League of Nations is a fantastic idea and that the Congress would rubber stamp it. And you know what? They didn't. And I, you know, studied First World War history at university and all the rest of it. I didn't see that analogy. And it was very interesting that this American professor uh, made that analogy between Theresa May and her withdrawal agreement and and, um, President Wilson and the League of Nations. It was a classic case of negotiating with people uh, abroad and then sort of somehow slightly forgetting about your constituency at home Mm -hmm. and the domestic politics that could realise your, your dreams. And I'm afraid that the analogy is, is a, quite a good one.
0: I mean, I'd love to do it and sort of, for devil's advocate's sake, defend Theresa May's handling of Parliament, but I can't find a way of doing it. But it. How, uh, how do you sorry. do it? I mean,
1: she lost by 230. I was there. I mean, I, I, I said to the whips, I came into the department in November last year, and, and at that time, you'll remember, we were going to have the meaningful vote in December. Yeah. And I said to the chief whip, I said, or one of the whips, I said, he so said, why don't we have the meaningful vote in December? He said, we can't possibly have the meaningful vote in December. And I said, why not? He said, we'll lose by 200. Let's do it next month. It'll be, you know, we'll have squared the necessary alliances and we'd have got it through. And then I remember seeing another whip the night of the vote. And I said, so what's the, what's the score? Said, and she just showed me. She couldn't even utter the, 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 the numbers. And it's 202. And I said, 202? That's a huge defeat. He says, no, 202 is the votes we got. The actual vote was 230 against. The, the margin, this was unprecedented. I mean, you know, we, 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 we're living through times which nobody has ever seen, and, and we think it's normal. Now for a government, and, and a lot of journalists said at the time, this is absolutely extraordinary. This is, I thought actually that she might resign at that point. But um, we, we added two further iterations. Uh, I think the closest we got to was 58. Mm-hmm. That was on the, third, on the third vote. And as I've said, the DUP, your key, the keystone of your governing arch hmm. rejected the deal three times. This is not good parliamentary management. I hope you're not teaching that to your students, because oh, it isn't. I, I it avoid my students. It isn't, like it. isn't. <laughs> yeah. This is worry. not good, I mean, I think Theresa May had great strengths as a prime minister, but parliamentary management, and people will look back on the, in the past, was not something we, were, we have been particularly good at. No, no, it does seem to me that
0: it, there is a certain lack of numeracy on all sides in parliament at the moment when it comes to mm-hmm. votes. But do you think ultimately you're gonna need Labour votes? I think we want
1: to get votes wherever we can. I mean, that's, what, that's the aim of the game. I think that, um, uh, we could—we again, we could have approached Labour slightly earlier in the process, mm-hmm. and that was one of the, the things that people in the, in the party, in the Conservative Party, would, found very difficult, yeah. um, was that uh, having said that she wasn't going to rely on Labour votes, in the end, after two years, uh, she reached out to Labour, and they said, well, why didn't you do this two years ago? Um,
0: and I never found an answer to that. Well, I mean, um, surely the answer is two years beforehand she had a majority, and what prime minister with a majority in parliament starts chatting to the opposition? So, I'm not talking about
1: exactly two years. Ago. Oh, right, I'm talking okay. about the... the election first
0: election oh, years ago okay. when
1: we lost the majority. I mean, it didn't take an Einstein to work out that, you know, in a hung parliament, we needed to build a broader
0: parliamentary coalition if we were going to get anything through. Do you, do you accept the fact that there is a danger inherent in the way some of your colleagues are talking about the civil service? Um, I think a lot of that has stopped... Um, so and, nice. I, and I agree with you. I mean, one of the things that
1: I've discovered, and they're all here, so I better watch what I'm saying. Hi. Um, <laughs> um, rubbish, aren't they? I, I, I've been really impressed. <laughs> you know what I'm going to say now. I've been really impressed, actually, by the civil service. I mean, I've only been a minister for nine months, and as a conservative backbencher, you know, we have a certain view of what the civil servants are doing, but actually being in the machine, I've really enjoyed working with them, and people say, "Oh, no, that's because they know how to butter you up, and that's probably true, but, um, but I think that... Uh, no, seriously, I think they're a first-class outfit.
0: But nonetheless, you have colleagues who are going out there, who are involved in the negotiations, who are going out there making it sound as if the negotiations were run by civil servants and not ministers. Now, negotiations aren't run by civil servants. They're run by ministers. So they have been well, all that's the, way the theory,
1: the- um, and there's, but there's a view that... Uh, perhaps the civil service view was not as in- interrogated as closely as it might have been. That's that's one of the
0: views. So you're saying the civil service didn't follow instructions or deviated th- from those instructions? No, I don't. Think, I don't
1: think they did. I think they they followed uh, they followed instructions, but those instructions happened to be things that they uh, agreed with. I don't think there was much tension between the, the officialdom and. The, okay. The, the in the
0: which system. case, it's nothing to do with the civil servants. or... No, no, I agree. I, okay. I'm not. I'm
1: not. I'm, I'm. I'm a great fan of the civil service. Okay. I'm Not saying that they they did a bad job at all. And actually, when when ministers blame civil servants, I'm always reminded of, you know, the the adage, you know, bad workmen blame their tools. Yeah. I think the civil service needs to be directed. It expects clear instructions. And if it doesn't get that, then, you know, uh, things can be be more complicated, more difficult. Do you think the EU is going to amend the backstop? I think they might do. I mean, as I said, with alternative... I've been told, oh, they will never change, they're set in stone, they're not going to compromise. I've seen them change quite considerably on alternative arrangements um, in the last year. You look at what they were saying uh, just a year ago about alternative arrangements, they'd completely dismissed it. This year, last few weeks, they, they've changed their tone on that. So that shows that they are flexible. Uh, they're not this sort of granite, you know, inflexible, you know, implacable uh, machine that, that we have to deal with. See, we've already got a bet, and I don't want to bankrupt you. That <laughs> it's only be. ten pounds. Yeah. So we the bet, it. by the way, is that Anand thinks there'll be a general election before the end of the year, and I don't think there will be. So it's ten pounds of even money. So um, a quit. Um, actually, I'm MP not sure it's very good very for mm. ministers to be saying that they indulge in gambling, but uh, this is a, just a very friendly,
0: uh, uh, friendly <laughs> it's bet. It's not a bet, friends, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, do you think it's a sensible strategy to threaten to withhold the Brexit bill payments? I think some of the... So
1: the, the, the monies related to the... So there's a difference of view in terms of how legally binding it is to pay all the money. My own view, and this is the view that Jacob has expressed in the past, is that we should be paying to the end of the budget period. So the budget period begins on the 1st of January 2014 and ends at the end of uh, 2020. So we, if the deal had gone through, we would have had about 20 months of the budget period. The other monies are... Which uh, I think you know there's, is an open discussion in terms of how much we should contribute uh, for civil service uh, pension liabilities and that sort of thing. And that number isn't a definite number;
0: it's, it's, it'll be a negotiation anyway. Okay, I think you've slightly sidestepped the question then. I mean, as a Probably, matter of yeah. principle, I mean, we might all quibble about what the sum should be, but as a matter of principle, do you think it's a good? Well, it's either right or it's a good negotiating strategy to say look we're going to withhold because the language is very much implied that this is a down payment on a trade deal rather than a payment for liabilities or for continuing I membership.
1: Agree. So I, I speak to in my former life I was in the city you didn't mention that but I speak to bankers all the time and American it's bankers from a Amer- yeah, that's right. <laughs> American bankers American banker very senior man said to, he didn't understand the deal he didn't understand how we had the money and there was a deal and we couldn't actually make that work for us. We couldn't say, well, here's the money, here's the deal we would like, uh, in exchange for the deal, here's, we, we give you the money. And I said, we don't operate like that. You know, we've got civil servants who operate by the rule of law, and we do everything by the book, which we should do. But a, a lot of people around the world are very surprised that we should be in the position we're in, given the fact that we were net contributors and given the fact that you know, we, we could potentially
0: give them a huge amount of money. But,
1: but That's it, all I'm saying about the negotiation. All right,
0: okay. Uh, could you imagine circumstances in which you would vote for a Northern Ireland-only backstop? A Northern Ireland-only... So the original backstop, before Theresa May won the concession that lost to the vote. I, I voted for a backstop three times. But the
1: Northern Ireland-only one, not the whole so, UK So one. the problem with that was the, the whole DUP issue. Yeah. Um, and that was something which would divide the union. So I, I would have a difficulty with that because the DUP are a
0: key okay. part of the coalition. Well, but imagine a world where we had a conservative majority government Think yeah. really, really hard.
1: All right. Yeah,
0: like okay, three yeah. years ago, two years ago. <laughs> All
1: right.
0: Um, um,
1: I, I think I, th- I, I probably wouldn't go down that because I'm enough of a unionist and I have to talk to DUP friends in terms okay. of what they thought about the integrity of the union. Do you think members of the ERG might? I
0: don't I'm, know. i you to, ask to speak for your colleagues. You'll okay. have
1: to ask them. I don't know i probably... I mean, they tend to be very pro-union, um, and they have very good relations with the DEP, so
0: probably not, but you'd have to ask them. I mean, Nigel Dodds has said he'd rather stay in the EU than risk the union. Do you share that uh, view? I don't, I don't see them as
1: conflicting principles. I mean, I was told, again, I hate to bring it back to 2016, but we were told that, you know, th- this was catnip to the SNP. Yeah. This basically would mean that... that um, Uh, Scotland would be independent, this was a disaster. And then the the next year we had a general election. And because we did badly, people forget, the The SNP SNP. did the worst of any of the major parties. They lost a third of their seats, which no one predicted.
0: But there is reputable polling out there that suggests that in the event of a no-deal Brexit, there might actually be a majority in Northern Ireland for unity with the Republic. So, again, you know, there are lots of polls. I I don't happen to think
1: the Brexit issue is what will undermine the union i think the union the pressures on the union stem from far wider broader causes and, and when people quote polls at me i mean anna you've seen the last 3 years no, no, i mean I, the yeah. polls are all over the place so when one poll is quoted at me as kind of hard evidence i tend to be very skeptical
0: we, we've always got different temperaments because i tend to believe the polls that say things i don't like
1: yeah but I, I don't seem believe to any distrust of them. The polls i don't that believe say things of them. you don't like
0: i don't believe any of them i mean i i, I don't
1: believe any of them actually Um, So the polls that said we were 25 points ahead. There was one poll we were on 50% (laughs) before the general election. Mm -hmm. We were on 50% in the country. And I said, this doesn't... And it helped us. I mean, I'd love to have believed that, but I didn't. But it might have been Um, right. I didn't didn't think it was. It might have been right. It might have been, but it wasn't right. Um, And uh, there are lots and lots of polls that one believes or one doesn't. And we just have to wait and see. Also, you know, these polls are on hypothetical situations. They're on a situation, if such and such happens... What would you do? And those are notoriously iffy polls. Everyone knows, again, we're talking about social science, you know, when you're trying to poll on something that hasn't happened yeah. and it's a hypothetical, uh, it's a very shaky basis on which to, to base sort of numerical data and which to make
0: an argument. Okay, I want to talk to you briefly about no deal. Which, sure. I mean, firstly, I suppose, is, is successful no deal an oxymoron? Look, I think no deal can work.
1: Um, I think, you know, my department's been what preparing does that mean? for it. I, think, I, think, I don't think there'll be a big. Uh, economic shock. I said yesterday to the uh, Times, one of the reporters, and he wrote it up and said, wow, this is incredible. Uh, and this is just the point that m- uh, Mervyn King m- made. If you look at GDP from 1800, I know it's a very, very long time ago, but if you were to look at a, at a, at a, at a graph, uh, you would see that the British economy over 200 years has grown up between about one and a half and two percent a year on average. Mm-hmm. And he made the point that if you covered the years, you covered the x-axis, you wouldn't actually be able to spot Uh, Where the world wars and the big tremors were because through this even growth and I said no deal is not a world war It it just isn't it just isn't anything like that Um, And so on that basis, I don't think it will have a long-term effect on The growth of the British economy and what Mm -hmm. makes countries rich you know Adam Smith talked about it. It's um, tax policy macroeconomic policy innovation productivity these are things that, frankly, have nothing to do with Brexit or very little to do with Brexit.
0: All right, in my view. I mean, two things. Firstly, it isn't a world war. No, no. It isn't a recommendation. No,
1: I, agree, I get that. I get, sorry,
0: I, 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 I
1: accept that. I'm, right. I was trying to make an argument. The logicians called it A40 or I. was saying, if in the case yeah, of okay. world wars, right. you, can't, you can't even see a tremor and in this particular okay. instance, which is not anything like a world war. Let me say, it's nothing like it. Um, it won't have any long-term impact on the growth. But, okay, that's my but, view. I mean, you know, but, and that
0: was the view that the old governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, had as well. But we live in a country where, you know, two years ago KFC ran out of chicken and people rang the police. <laughs> sure, that's right. You right? didn't, did you? No, well, I wouldn't no, I was, would have I was very upset. upset. I mean, upset, don't get me wrong, upset. but I just shouted at KFC. Look, I, mean, I
1: don't want to trivialise. I mean, you know, my department has been working to deal with no deal for the best part of a year, more than a year. Uh, When the Prime Minister said that, you know, Brexit, when she went to the uh, Mm -hmm. committee uh, and said, uh, the liaison committee, and said that the Brexit department's uh, main function would be to prepare for no deal, you know what? That's what they did. And Mark Sedwell, actually just the other week, last week, I think, two weeks ago, said that some of the no deal preparation he'd seen was the best uh, work that the civil service, in his experience, among the best work that they'd ever done. So there's clearly a real professional uh, focus on making sure that no deal... Uh, can happen and that we're ready for it. So
0: why is the candidate you're supporting talking about ramping up no-deal preparations? Then? Well, there was, a, there was a time, I think, in April where we'd yep. uh, dialed it down because
1: uh, we'd got the extension for six months. In March, we were about to leave the EU. It was quite full-on. And I think it was dialed down in April. And what uh, Boris, I believe, is saying is that we should ramp it up because that's something that we need to we need to focus
0: on. I'm not looking at my watch because I'm bored. I'm looking at my watch because we have to leave at 7. Oh, uh, Is that over? Yeah. Uh, all right, let just talk about the politics of No Deal because this is what fascinates me. Yeah. It strikes me as probable. Let's say probable that we can't foresee everything that would happen because of no deal, oh. so there will be disruptions of some kind, some way, shape, and form. It might be queues at ports, it might be certain goods not getting through, it might be certain supply sure. chains falling apart. Uh, we have a, quite a low tolerance for that sort of thing. We've talked about the, the, the refinery blockades. Uh, we, we remember Black Wednesday and the impact that had on the uh, reputation of the Conservative Party for economic competence. How does a government take us into no deal? I mean, even if it isn't catastrophic, even if it isn't 10% off GDP and all that stuff, even if it is just delays, shortages, queues? I don't think that'll happen. I hope it'll be, uh, at a, the disruption will be minimal.
1: That's what, that's what we've been planning for. Um, but you're right, there are things that could happen. But I, I think that's something that's...
0: How do uh, stop manageable. supply chains getting
1: messed and up? And so the, the alternative is, having said that you know, 100 times, I believe, that we were going to leave on the 29th, and then having written for an extension and then having got the extension on the 31st of October, I think any government that then asks for another extension uh, would, would be in an even more difficult place than, than the, the situation you described with no deal. That's my own view. Now but, we have a different view.
0: But I'm talking um, about the
1: country, you're talking about the party. I'm talking about the country and, I'm ta- and you were talking about um, how does any government, uh, which is party based, you were talking about how does any government respond to that. Um, politically, because when you mentioned Black Wednesday, you, weren't talk, you were talking about the fate of the Conservative Party afterwards. That's what and the, I was, the reputation that, of the that's, Conservative yeah, that, Party, that, that's, yeah. what, that's what I but I'm saying we have a, an equal reputational risk, having said that we were going to leave on the 29th, and then having said that we are going to leave on the 31st of October, to delay again, I think, has, a, has also a reputational risk.
0: Okay, I mean, this morning, the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders had their annual summit, and... The head of the organisation was absolutely unequivocal. No deal for the car industry would be a catastrophe, okay? Ramping up car prices, threatening jobs. Whatever the risk of delaying the 31st of October, how do you win an election if he's right? Okay, so how do we win an election if,
1: having said that we were going to have... And I, I see the world very differently from you. I mean, I'm in a constituency where, as you said, I got a 13,500 majority mm-hmm. and the, the Brexit party got 40% of the vote mm-hmm. in the European elections and my party got 11%. Yeah. So I've got a, I've got a different uh, perspective on democracy and how people will react to the Conservative Party if, again, for the second time, we delay that date. Okay. And, and, and you're talking about the economy and I'm fully cognizant of that. But I'm, but I'm talking more broadly about our political risk and trust in politics. And I think that's a huge
0: element I get that, in but, this. But what if they're wrong? I.e., what if Brexit's a party supporting voters who assume that no deal will be fine and it's Project Fear and it's Crying Wolf, what if they're wrong? So my point wasn't about whether they're wrong or
1: right. My point is about a reputational risk that the entire political class has. We had a referendum... Both parties, main parties, said that they would honour that referendum in their manifestos. And if they don't, I think there's a huge reputational risk about democracy in this country. That's what I think.
0: Right, let me make it specific. If we could leave on the 14th of November with a deal, or the 31st of October without a deal, which would you choose?
1: I would prefer to have to leave on the 31st of October with a deal. So okay. I'm having my cake and eat it.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> to coin a phrase. Um, but I think that... I think that uh, I think we can get amendments to the deal and I think we can leave on the 31st of October.
0: But another practical question then. How do we pass the withdrawal agreement bill? I mean, I'm starting to wonder You've whether asked is... asked that before. Yeah, but I'm and starting I to said, wonder and whether... And I said to
1: you that the, the, the one thing you had to do if you were Theresa May was to get the DUP on side. Now, as I've said, it was necessary but Not, not the withdrawal not agreement, the withdrawal agreement bill. The bill, the bill, the yeah. bill, the bill.
0: How do we pass the that bill. in time before the 31st of bill. October now?
1: Um, I think it could be done. Um, I think it, w- it, it depends when it would be introduced, but I think if you introduced it at the beginning of September, I think you'd be able to get it uh, through the House by the end of October, that's... And the Lords? Yeah, I mean... I mean, this is serious legislation. Like no, no, we've been here before. I mean, the whole basis, the reason why Theresa May resigned was that she said she was going to introduce the withdrawal agreement, one of the reasons, the withdrawal agreement bill, and there was a clause in the bill, it's never been published, but there was a clause in the bill um, saying that there would be a second referendum which people rejected. Now, the time frame for the introduction was I think the week beginning of June the fourth. Mm-hmm. And the idea was we were gonna spend six weeks and get it through. That was that was the
0: idea. But the beginning of September doesn't give us six weeks. You've got it, two weeks to the Lib Dems. Then you're all breaking until I think the middle yeah, but of we, October can with, do the things with the recess. I don't, I don't know, but that's for the parliamentary management. But I think it is possible. Okay. All right. Do you think that... Conservative MPs who vote against no deal should have the whip withdrawn?
1: No, I think they should have the whip withdrawn if they vote for, in a no confidence deal. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, they voted against no deal in various um, House of Commons motions. But the idea that if in a vote of no confidence you can vote against your government and then keep the whip yeah. is for okay. the birds, frankly. So
0: that's what I would say. Did you see the piece by Robert Saunders in the New Statesman about British conservatism? No, I, I mean, he it, said. He said three things. I mean, this, this is hmm. sort of headline stuff. He said, it, the party has stopped thinking, it's stopped conserving, and it's lost its suspicion of ideology. Um, so, and well, I'm going to put you a specific yeah, question yeah. on each one. Uh, I mean, with regard to stop thinking, this seems to be a leadership contest of wild, unfunded, and unaffordable textbooks. So I think there's a lot of thinking. I mean, if you look
1: at um, people like Neil O'Brien, just to mention uh, a lot of MPs, Uh, We've written, you know, beyond Brexit. I think there's a a huge amount of ideas. Whether those ideas are adopted by the leadership is another question Um, because I think we've gone through a period where we've had a very intensely bureaucratic approach to government Mm -hmm. and people are saying that, you know, perhaps we could be more sort of fluid in terms of Mm -hmm. adopting ideas and having more intellectual creativity. Um, But I don't think that's that's a a chronic condition of the party. I think if you look at MPs across uh, the party, there are lots of people with lots of fizzing with ideas and, and, and policies, um, but what it, the, the difficulty is getting the government to
0: adopt and drive some of those policies. But you have candidates for the leadership promising extraordinary tax cuts that yeah. clearly haven't been costed, and it's not at all clear where the money comes from or what will be sacrificed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of that talk on tax cuts and, fu- um, you know, funding uh,
1: is, is, is regrettable. I mean, I, I wouldn't have, have, have pursued that. Um, I mean, if you're alluding to the Boris uh, fiscal oh, drag point, others, yeah. I mean, in the actual article, he didn't put any numbers there. And somehow the numbers... I don't know who the—I don't know, who, the, um, I don't know who, who briefed that it was going to be between 50,000 and 80,000 and all that sort of thing. But that wasn't, that wasn't part of the, the article and, and what he was talking about. But something's changed. Broader...
0: I mean, your party didn't get its manifesto costed in 2017 either. I mean, this is no. a strange turn for a Conservative so, party. So, in 1979, and it's going back a bit, and we're quite old,
1: but... Um, the Tory manifesto. I, I looked at it two weeks ago, actually. Do you know how much was costed there in the 79 manifesto? No clue. Nothing. I didn't read the conservative nothing, manifesto. Nothing, yet. nothing, um, And yet they had lots of ideas. Actually, when the, the beauty of that manifesto was that it talked a lot about philosophy, it talked a lot about uh, the state and so-called ideology that your friend is saying that we, we, we're now entranced to. Um, and it didn't have any costings. But at that time, there was a real ferment of ideas. Nobody would say that Thatcherism didn't have ideas. I mean, you might hate the ideas. You might disagree with them, but they had it. There were ideas. I mean, Tony Benn said of her, to me, actually, and he said it uh, uh, many times, you know, Margaret Thatcher, there are two types of politicians. There are weather vanes and there are signposts. And the weather vanes obviously buffet around with the winds, and the signposts are very clear about the direction they're going. And he said, Thatcher was a signpost. Even though I totally disagree, this is Tony Benn speaking, with the direction she was going, she was a signpost. And actually, going back to that time, that, you know, there was an ideology, broadly, um,
0: and there were very little costings in that manifesto. So which of the two is Boris Johnson? <laughs> I think, I mean... I mean is it the Boris Johnson who blew the dog whistle on immigration in the referendum I think, campaign I or think, the Liberal International? I, I think Boris, broadly, and people forget this, but Boris
1: actually supported Ken Clark in 2001. The first uh, year that he was in Parliament, um, he was a Ken Clark supporter. You know, he's a, someone who, doesn't uh, make any bones about the fact that he's a one-nation uh, Tory. And a lot of people, his friends, are now on the right of the party, um, do question some of his you know, very broad, slightly fiscally expansive uh, commitments. So I think he's been a, 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 a sort of broadly one-nation Tory
0: um, ever since he's been in politics. But isn't one of the problems with him that he's been a little bit of everything at some point, which means that we're not exactly sure which one we're gonna get. So it's a very
1: interesting thing. I'm, 20 years ago, I remember someone saying, someone like Blair or Clinton, they could reach all parts of the party, and that was a good thing. A politician who can uh, range across, you know, the extremes of his party, appeal to the centre of his party, build a coalition, that's a good thing. Boris did exactly that with AMPs, and now he's being accused of being a flip-flopper or saying things to all, all things to all men. I think that's a very sophisticated politician. I mean, I would struggle to do that. I think it's a very sophisticated politician that can bring enough people from different wings of the party to back them in the leadership. And that's exactly what he did uh, in the last rounds that we saw two weeks ago, in the last two weeks.
0: I don't think Blair ever reached Corbyn, I have to say. Well, he uh, used to have tea with Corbyn a lot. Yeah, yeah, but Yeah, yeah, I Corbyn still...
1: (laughs) Corbyn still... Actually, it was Dennis Skinner he had tea with. You're right. He didn't reach everybody. So, I mean... But he he, he did
0: have a broad coalition within the party. I mean, the second charge of this article by Robert Saunders, and I should say, not all academics are my friends, so... Even necessarily, is the Party of Conservation now has members who slag off business, slag off the civil service, abuse Supreme Court judges. That's a bit weird, isn't it?
1: Um, again, I would go back to the 80s. Uh, uh, the, in the 80s, because he's saying that this is all new. He's, or he's saying his thesis is that somehow, at some point in the past, the Conservatives... No, th- the thesis for this. is
0: that core elements of conservatism have been abandoned.
1: Yeah, and I would say that challenging vested interests certainly since Thatcher's time, w- w- has been a, a, a tradition within the Conservative Party. What are you conservative? Um, the, uh, as Nigel Lawson said, he never described himself as a Tory. He said, I'm a, I'm a Tory radical. Me- you know, his memoirs are memoirs of a Tory radical. So the idea that the Conservatives are just you know, want to freeze everything in aspect...
0: That so they're conservative. Um, and
1: uh, I think is, is something that, that I would challenge. Um, but I'd love to have, I don't know who this Robert is, but I'd love you, to have a, will, will a conversation with him about
0: it. We can put you in touch with him. Because I, I don't think his understanding of the history of it is, is quite right. And the third claim, I'm going to soldier on here, True. is that the Conservatives are famously a pragmatic party, but Brexit is basically an idea. So again, party. I'd go
1: back to the 80s. They said exactly the same thing then. They said this is not pragmatic, this is not uh, consensus driven, this is too ideological and we won three general elections. Okay, the opponents were split, but they we won three general elections with good majorities. So, again, that's not something that is new. I don't think it's true, actually. I don't think we're any more ideological as a party than we were 30 or 40 years you ago. You don't
0: think your party looks and feels and sounds fundamentally different to how it sounded five or six years ago? I think Brexit has, has brought things to the fore that were underlying.
1: Mm-hmm. But are you asking... Bill Cash was saying those things 30 years ago. We have people in our party... No, no but you changed. always
0: find the odd outlier, yeah, yeah. but now but it's, I don't it's think the front broad, and centre,
1: I, isn't it? I don't think the... Well, it's only front, front and centre because the European issue has become front and centre through Brexit. But I think the, there is still a broad a range of opinions on all sorts of things. How many still,
0: Conservative foreign ministers have said F business?
1: Well, he said it in a private conversation. You haven't had dinners with Conservative foreign ministers. I've heard them use a lot fruitier language than that on all sorts I, of things. On business? I on, business bit, on all sorts of things. I mean, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to go there. If I were you, I mean, you know, he said this in some dinner and, you know, he uses the F word probably a bit too liberally. We all do. Um, and um, and he, he said this in a private dinner. I don't know what the context was. The dinner, the conversation was leaked and it suddenly became a huge thing. That's the danger of these things. I mean, I'm amazed I've agreed to do this because everything and this is open, but everything gets it. You can't say anything.
0: Yeah, but it's um, fun, isn't it? This? It is this fun. i enjoying yeah.
1: good. I'm enjoying the beer as well. <laughs> I'm not sure about the Brexit there, but the beer.
0: good. <laughs> Who should your party be more worried about, Jeremy Corbyn or Nigel Farage?
1: So that's a brilliant question. And, and, um, well done, Alan. No, no, no. My sense... So again, we were talking about necessary, not sufficient, all of that sort of stuff. I think there's a sequence. So we're going down the road. I mean, I hate using metaphors because Boris uses them all the time and he always gets into trouble for them. But, but we're going down the road... And Corbyn is at the end of the road. We can deal with Corbyn at the end of the road, but there's this big boulder in the middle of the road with Farage's name on it. And somehow we've got to get rid of that or move it to one side before we can actually try and defeat Corbyn. So I think that uh, they both pose a threat, but we have to de- I don't see how we can successfully deal with Corbyn without putting the Brexit party and Farageism and all of that um, back in its, its box or, or, or in a much uh, less forceful position than it is today.
0: So, so they're both threats, but we have to deal with one before the other. We're almost doubling back, but if the price of dealing with Farage is leaving with no deal, mm. I mean, do you accept there will be any economic disruption in the event of no deal? But
1: I, I think what I would say is that whatever it is will be far, far less than a lot of the doom mongers and, and
0: scaremongers are saying. That's because if there is any, it affects your ability to take on Corbyn down that road. Yeah, I think yeah, there, there's risk. There's risk in everything in life, there's risk in any policy.
1: Um, and I think there is risk, but I think those risks have been grossly overstated uh, to the economy as, as a whole.
0: Do you think no deal increases the chances of you losing that second So you've not asked not me, too. I don't know how many questions. No, no, I know, but I mean, about I'm 40% bit, I'm talking, of the no deal. I'm talking about the politics um,
1: now. And um, I think, well, we have to see what the fallout of, if, if, they, if we do have an no idea, what, what the consequences of it are. Um, but I think that, I actually have a private view. I don't think Corbyn will get in. Um, now, the Labour Party might change leader, I, and, I, and I suspect that they might, given the fact that we've done it. Um, I think they, they, there'll be a lot of pressure among parts of uh, the Labour Party to, to refresh uh, okay. the Labour Party. Uh, so, but I don't think Corbyn himself will, will, get, to, will get to number 10.
0: Who do you you personally feel closer to politically and ideologically, Jacob Rees-Mogg or Dominic Grieve? Um, Depends on what issues. I mean, on social issues,
1: I probably am more with Dominic. On the European question, I'm probably more with Jacob. And on the economy, I don't know what Dominic Grieve's views are on the economy, actually. I don't know what his... um, I mean, I I know him, but I don't know him so well to know what his views about economic growth and, and regeneration and the budget... I don't know what his views on the budget are.
0: Do you think the parliamentary party is becoming an unsustainably broad church?
1: Well, Again, the party's always been a broad church. You look at the history of the Conservative Party, um, there've been pro-empire people, there've been anti-empire people, there've been pro-free trade people, there've been protectionists, Mm -hmm. there've been um, pro-EU people, dare I say it, there've been anti-EU people. There's there's always been these uh, cleavages in the the Conservative Party and differences of view and debates uh, within the party. And I think that's a healthy thing. Um, and I, it's the same with the Labour Party. There's always been huge divergence of views on all sorts of issues, on nationalisation, on, uh, as I say, free trade, on uh, labour reform. There have been all sorts of divisions in the Labour Party as well as in the Conservative Party. This isn't anything
0: new. Uh, this isn't anything new at all. Do you think it's good that it is Conservative Party members that will choose the next Prime Minister? So this, we were talking about this earlier.
1: I think that... Um, it's a, a massive improvement on where we were before. So people forget this, but I'm old enough, as you are, to remember the 1990 uh, transition. I'm very young. <laughs> I know you were, you were in primary school <laughs> then, but, but, uh, but some of us who were doing our GCSEs at the time, remember... Oh, God, you did GCSEs? Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. I've expanded O-levels. <laughs> <one. all> right. <laughs> um, remember that, at that time, it was just the Tory MPs. You know, we were having a new prime minister, And I remember when he was elected, no one had heard of him. And people said, who's John Major? You know, Powell actually famously said, I think John Major doesn't exist. I think he's a confection by the media. Um, And that's how we elected our prime minister. And again, not even the distant past. We all remember 2007 uh, and 2016, different parties, we had a new prime minister that wasn't even elected. Um, So having 160,000 members have a vote on a new prime minister is a significant improvement on the times before where these people either emerged or were, were uncontested um, and, and came to power.
0: I mean, I get you're going to need their vote one day when you stand for leader, so you can't say <laughs> the danger is they elect a leader who's fundamentally out of touch with the electorate at large. Which, I wouldn't which say might, that. Okay. I'm never well, nor gonna, should you, i <laughs> you've got your ambitions. I <laughs> no, mean, no, no. Is no. Look, I mean, some free that, advice, don't say it. This idea... We'll move on. <laughs> I've got other questions, we're fine.
1: This idea um, that the members are, you know, what did uh, Cameron's man call them? swivel, eyed, swivel eyed I think that was just completely... And that actually sums up what happened to Cameron, really, because he didn't really understand um, uh, much of what was going on in the Tory party uh, in the country. And if he had done, I think he would have taken a much more cautious view of the referendum and how he campaigned in it. Um, I, think, uh, I think he underestimated the, the strong feelings that many members and Tory voters had uh, about the EU. Are you looking forward to his memoir? I'm thrilled about his memoir. Because I remember a friend of mine said, well, Hillary Clinton came out with hers in six months. Do you remember? What happened? Mm -hmm. Um, She lost in November 2016. And the the memoir was out in six months. Whereas I think David has had a more sort of maturing, uh, more leisurely approach, perhaps, uh, to his memoirs. But I think the book will be fantastic. I look forward to reading it. You going to do a review of it? I might do. Um, d- depends who's, uh, who's who wants to be to do. <laughs> who's what. asking? Absolutely. No, I think I think it'll be fascinating because I think that I mean a lot of these memoirs are very interesting for what they don't say. So it'll be very interesting, you know, who he talks about, who he doesn't talk about, uh, and and how he perceives uh, what happened. And I think actually it would have been very interesting to have the memoir immediately afterwards, because like all human beings, we always use hind- hindsight perhaps to justify or to explain what we've done. And
0: I think three years on is quite a long time. I'm taking that as code, that you to just look under K in the index. No, the that's what everyone does. Really well, I post, never yeah, see myself right, in right. the right. index, unfortunately. Who's yeah. your political role model?
1: I don't really have a political role. I mean, the people I admire in politics. Um, I like Margaret Thatcher. I liked uh, a number of the people around her. I liked uh, Nigel Lawson. I thought he was a very interesting...
0: That's the net, sort of internationally uh, in uh, your history. Uh,
1: I thought Barack Obama was very interesting. I thought, uh, I think Macron is very interesting. Um, I do not necessarily share all their views, but the way they project themselves, the way they're connected with their, their electorate, I think.
0: But who's the politician that's most inspired you? Um, I think
1: a combination. I mean, I like, as I say, Thatcher was an extraordinary figure in my uh, formative years. And actually, I met her once and I said, you're the reason why so many people on the Conservative side and the Labour side, frankly, um, went into politics. But she was the dominant figure of our time. I, I, just sort an anecdote on this. The, I made my maiden speech um, and there were 20 other MPs in 2010, who made, including Gavin Williamson and all sorts of people. And there must have been 20 speeches that day, on, and 10 roughly from Labour, 10 from us. And three quarters of the speakers mentioned Margaret Thatcher, either for good or ill. And I remember thinking, I was sitting in the chamber thinking, she left power 20 years ago, in 1990, mm. And in 2010, we were still talking about how Thatcher had, had influenced us or spurred us in one way, positively or negatively, or all of that. It seemed like an extraordinary thing. And it was almost as if the last 20 years, the preceding 20 years, hadn't happened. So she was a big figure in, 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 in my political development. Now, I don't think everything she did was right. And I think her style, she you know, led a lot, a lot, to be sometimes a lot to be desired. But broadly, she was
0: a, a, a very impressive political figure. Outside of Brexit, which overshadows everything at the moment, yeah. what is your overriding policy priority?
1: So there are two things. I think the way we do infrastructure in this country needs a radical look at. And now I think my own view, and I've spoken about this and written about it, is that mm-hmm. the problem with infrastructure, we've got the money, we could raise bonds uh, and we can, we can spend the money, but the projects, the actual projects... Um, how we decide what to spend money on and the speed with which we act is, is, is a big problem. I mean, now, you know, people talk about Crossrail. That still hasn't been delivered yet. That's clearly a problem. The third runway in Heathrow, which is a big constituency interest of mine, has been debated for 15 years, 16 years. The government white paper was in 2003, and they just took it off the website last October because mm-hmm. I always used to go back to it. And then one day it was like, you know, your request has been rejected or something. it? <laughs> um, and, and I think we've got, a, we've got big issues about how... And I know Osborne set up the National Infrastructure um, Body or whatever it is, um, the NIA, I think it's called. But, the, but, the, um, but I think we've got an issue with that. And the other thing is innovation and skills in terms of not sc- so much school leavers, but the apprenticeship piece and sort of 16 to 19 further education... I know we brought in T levels, mm-hmm. but I think the way in which the workplace operates, um, our education system it, it isn't catching up quickly enough with with mm-hmm. how it work is, is evolving. So those are the two interests. Those are my two big interests in terms of driving growth and productivity. I think we've got to look at training, mm-hmm. education, and infrastructure. Before I let you go, we have a quick fire round. Yeah, I've read the up? questions. Have you? So I'm prepared. Yeah. How? Well, my officials. I've got officials. <laughs> oh, I think we sent you the wrong. <laughs> They've that done their it. research. Anyway, just, just oh, far I'm away. gutted now.
0: This is really well, bad. Well, I'm not going to change. I mean, they're self okay. to. Gonna... Beer or burgundy? Uh, beer. Beetles or the stones? Beetles. Good, you have of them. Cheddar or camembert? Cheddar. I'm going to say that, I'm sorry. I mean, given Brexit. Well, you've got <laughs> <no taste>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd like to say for the next question: Jacob rees mogg didn't understand it. Oasis or Blur? I can just about understand it, and I oh, think well Oasis. You think Oasis? Yeah, I think Oasis is better. Beef bourguignon or steak and ale pie? Beef bourguignon, I'm afraid. Okay, no, That that's won't fine. go down well in the no, no, not at all. UK in a changing Europe or any other think tank you care to mention? So what do you think I'm going to say? Well, I don't know. I've got a present here for you. You don't know what it is. If I don't totally do It's totally up to answer. you whether you get it or not. Uh, let me think. Uh, <laughs> it's a difficult one. <laughs> UK, see. <laughs> <laughs> there IACA. we go. I give you, in that oh, case. wonderful. Yeah, oh, you see. Can I drink my beer out of it? You can, indeed, yes. That would be this lovely. Is mar- I don't have much left. with I'm the wondering. cameras going mad. It's really exciting. Cheers. Quasi quantum. <laughs> thank you so very much indeed thank for coming you, along thank this you. evening. Enjoy.